From creation to the flood to the patriarchs to Egypt, join me, Pastor Hook, as we go through Genesis, the backstory to the beginning. We are in Genesis, we are in Genesis 3. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 is the creation, and man it has this age of innocence. And then all of a sudden, in Genesis 3, Eve has this encounter with the serpent uh, and decides that she is going to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then God uh, punishes mankind for doing this, uh, and they have this encounter with God where they're afraid of God. Now, all of this is to say that um, they're always, if you, if you just step back and take a look at this story, there's a couple things that are like, hmm. And we're going to do that today. We're going to just talk about some things that go, hmm. And I guess the first question that I want to start with, uh, actually I have a couple notes, um, is where, where did Satan come from? All right? Did, was he always in the garden? And why was he allowed in the garden? Uh, if Eve and Adam are in the garden and they didn't have Satan, would they have not ever eaten from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Uh, because it appears from Scripture that this whole idea about good and evil is precipitated from Satan. That we have in Western culture this belief that Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, this belief that Adam and Eve were created without sin, uh, and they didn't have the capacity to sin. And so therefore, the fact that they sinned had to be something from outside of their nature. And that something from outside of their nature is the serpent, right? This evil father of lies. We spent a lot of time yesterday talking about how Satan is the father of lies and how he got Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was because he lied to her. And Eve, because of her innocence, right, um, believed Satan and ate from the tree of good and e of knowledge of good and evil, and that's where this whole thing started. But you got to ask yourself—I mean, you really do have to ask yourself—where did where did Satan come from, and why did God allow Satan to slither around in the garden and uh, be there so that he could lead? Adam and Eve astray. And there are lots and lots of, of philosophers that have struggled with this question. Uh, I don't really struggle with it too much because I put it in the same category as why does God allow evil to exist in the world? Why does God allow earthquakes? Why does God allow the coronavirus to unleash its terror in the world? Uh, th those questions, believe it or not, even though I have thought about them for all of my life, and I went to seminary, and I studied all that. The answer to that question is not very straightforward. Uh, the, the, only answer that you can, the only answer you can really cling to is, why does God allow evil to exist, is we don't know. God just simply allowed Satan to be in the garden. Because there's, there's, there's not very many good answers, right? The one is, is that Satan forced himself into the garden, right? And as he forced himself into the garden, God was completely powerless to remove Satan from the garden and protect his children. 
And it's like, well, but God's all powerful. So that doesn't make any sense. Well, then it's, well, maybe God allowed Satan to be in the garden because God's plans are greater than Satan's plans. Uh, that one is a little bit easier to swallow, but it still means that God at some level was complicit in Satan being in the garden and uh, allowing himself to have this encounter with Eve where she ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and that one, you know, doesn't necessarily sit very well with this either. It's either God's powerless over evil, uh, you know, evil is equally as powerful as God, or evil, uh, that God allows evil to exist, even though it causes, uh, uh, unleashes terror in the world. Uh, and, and that one we don't like either. Uh, and, and when you really, really think about it, none of those answers, none of the answers of how to deal with evil sit well with us. And where I come down on the question of evil, this is just me personally, because people, philosophers, theologians have been struggling with this for, for a long time. Where I come down with this is, A, we can't know, but the one thing we can cling to, and the one thing I cling to, is that God is good that God has our best interests in mind, and that because I'm human and I'm not a God, that I don't understand the relationship between good and evil and humanity and why evil exists and all those sort of things. And that if I were smarter, if I were more like God, uh, if there was a, if there was a, if I'd eaten the, the, the seeds in the fruit or something, maybe my eyes would have been open and understand why evil exists. But the fact is, is that I just, it's one of those things, it is probably one of the most foundational things as to why God allowed Satan to be in the garden. And, and I put it on the same category and I put it on the same shelf. It's that top shelf stuff that you can sit there and you can think about it and you can ponder about it and you can, uh, you can ask God about it. And ultimately there are just no good answers. And that, and that is... Uh, the same thing is true with time and space. This, I mean, there's so many things in this world that we simply, because we're human, we don't have the answer to. We never have the answer to. So uh, one day we can be with God and in his presence and we can ask him, why does evil exist? Why did you allow it? And he will answer it for us. Or maybe uh, at the resurrection of our own body, when we live with it, that all things will be revealed and we won't have to ask God because we'll understand that, that heaven and eternity and all the things that deal with God will be so evident and apparent in our life that all the questions that we have in this life will finally be revealed. Um, but I do believe that there is a resurrection and I do believe that at some day we will be face-to-face uh, -face in the presence of God and all things will be revealed. And uh, it will be magnificent and it will be wonderful. So, um, so coming down one step from that, then we have this other question about Eve, uh, which is this. Western, Western philosophy, when I say Western philosophy, I mean, uh, it, you know, it started in Greek philosophy and worked its way up to Rome, and then it's worked its way over into the United States. And we have a Western viewpoint of the world. But there are other viewpoints of the world. There's the Asian viewpoint of the world. There's the African viewpoint of the world. 
And those are different viewpoints. But our Western viewpoint of the world has this narrative. And the narrative is this, that Eve and Adam were in the garden and they had two paths to choose, right? The path of good was that they should never eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The path of bad is eating from that tree of knowledge of good and evil. And because of our culture and our mindset, we see Adam and Eve coming to a fork in the road and do you choose the left fork or do you choose the right fork? And then Eve, when she came to this fork, she chose the right fork. I'm sorry, she chose the left fork. I'm not going to call it the right fork because the right fork would have been not eating from the tree. Uh, the left fork is deviating and eating from the tree, getting from the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and then, and of course, God has all this stuff that happens because of that. And the, so coming back down to this next step, the question is, did Eve, did Eve have the capacity to not eat from the tree? In other words, would, would she have been available? Would her nature have been such that she could have never eaten from the tree and she would have never ever then fallen from the garden? Or was this a predisposed thing? Was Eve always going to eat from the tree? It was just a matter of when it was going to happen. Or I guess you could say a third thing is, is did it was it because of Satan introduced into this? Uh, could the encounter with Satan have gone differently? Could Satan have said, eat from the tree, and Eve could have said, no, I'm not going to eat from the tree because God told me not to eat from the tree, and because I'm such a moral, upright, wonderful woman, I'm never going to eat from that tree. And you say, well, uh, of course Eve was a moral, upright, because there was no sin in the garden, right? So therefore, uh, how, you know, where did this sin come from? Did it come from internally into her? Or was it an external thing that came from the serpent? Well, we, we as Western culture say, well, it was always something that came from the serpent. But then you have to ask yourself, well, then why didn't Eve, who was perfectly without sin, why didn't she use that perfectness in her body to resist Satan to not eat from the tree, right? And these are questions that, that we have struggled with theologically and philosophical from, from time, from day one. Because it all comes down to what is the nature of man? And when I say man, I'm not talking about Adam. I'm talking about the pre-Eve Adam, right? Eve came out of mankind according to the, you know, to the scripture. And so this is, the, this is man as he existed in man and woman. This is mankind. And instead of saying mankind, I just like to say man. But I'm not, hope you understand, I'm not trying to be sexist when I say man. I'm just saying mankind, and it's a shorthand for mankind to just say man. I just want to put that out there because I don't think any of you think I'm sexist because I, I don't, well, maybe I am. I don't know. But anyway, um, don't know why I went on to that squirrel. All right. So now we have um, this question about man. Did he have evil in him in the garden? Or was this a turning point in the garden? And it gets down to the next level, which is what I want to talk about a little bit today. And that's the question of free will. Does man have free will? And what I mean by free will is this. What separates mankind from the animals? Uh, if you have a dog or a cat, a dog or a cat, 
pretty much everybody believes that dogs and cats don't have free will. When a dog sees a squirrel, uh, it has a mechanism in its brain that fires on all these things, and it says whether or not it's going to chase the squirrel or not. And the reason why the dog chases the squirrel is because it is predisposed. It will always chase the squirrel because that's what that dog does. But we know that we can train a dog so that it doesn't chase the squirrel. And the way that we do that is that we train the dog that if it starts to chain, chase the squirrel, we give it uh, uh, some sort of external evidence, you know, an external stimulus to prevent it from chasing the squirrel. That external stimulus might be uh, we, we whip the dog or we deny the dog food or we yell at the dog or whatever it is, we condition the dog so that it doesn't chase the squirrel. And we can actually do this because we are more powerful, more intellectually uh, alert than the dog. We can stop the dog from chasing the squirrel. And actually, humankind is very, very good at training animals because animals, as, we can, as near as we can tell, animals don't have free will. They will always respond to the stimulus based upon how they have lived in their previous, you know, how they've been programmed. And uh, we, as humans, can change the programming of an animal. We can change the programming of a dog. But we can get that dog to the point where it will always follow its program because dogs don't have free will. And if you really deep dive into the issue of free will, as Karl Barth said, he was a theologian from the you know, early 19th century. Karl Barth said that, that in order to have free will, you have to have morality. The two go hand in hand. You can't have free will unless you have a morality by which to judge free will. Because if you don't have morality, then we as humans are always following our impulses based upon the programming that we have. And therefore, we don't have free will. Now, I mean, that may seem crazy to you, but if you get down into what the human brain is, it is basically just a computer, right? We have inputs, we have outputs, and we follow those inputs and outputs based upon our previous history and our pre previous, you know, everything that we've experienced up to that point. And so when you are a child in the age of innocence, your parents are programming into you the way that they want you to live, almost like a human programs a dog. And then once that is programmed, we kind of set on that path for the rest of our life. And do we really have free will? And man, that is a, that is a fascinating question. Uh, do we as humans um, have the ability, did God give us the ability to follow our path aside from the instincts that we have from the path that we've led up to this point. Uh, and I will, I will just tell you right now that that is a debate that mankind has had since the history of debates. And uh, we as uh, people in the kingdom of God, we, because of this creation story, and we see that God told them there's two paths, and you got to choose the better path, and Eve didn't choose the better path, and so that unleashed into us a world of sin uh, that obviously humans do have free will, and, and that we have an objective standard of morality, which we call the revelation from God, 
and we can either follow that objective standard of morality or we can not follow that objective standard for morality for us. We believe that there is free will. But there are many, many philosophers throughout time and even theologians throughout the history of mankind that have struggled with whether or not we have the ability to choose between good and evil. And uh, we may get later on into the whole Luther debate on that. He wrote a book on it called The Bondage of the Will. Uh, but I'm not talking about that right now. That's more a theological question of how you enter into the kingdom of God, whether or not mankind has the ability to enter into the kingdom of God. But what I'm talking about is even at a more basic level than that, which is whether or not mankind even has free will. And, and my answer on that is yes, I think. <laughs> Pretty sure. But, but my, my answer to that is based upon this, this issue of the garden and the fall. Because it is pretty clear to me that in the garden, Eve had a choice. She could either take the left choice and eat from the tree or take the right choice and not eat from the tree. And as a person, as a sentient human being with her mind and her intellect, and she knew what God had told her to do, she knew what Adam had told her to do, that she had the choice to either eat or didn't, Satan, this evil that God placed into the garden, came in and said, hey, eat from the tree, because when you do, you will become like God. And Eve looked at the tree and she violated the one part of her that, that God had told her, that, that Adam had told her, don't eat from the tree. You have one thing, and she did, she violated it, and that, that unleashed a whole bunch of different things. And the question um, of free will, uh, basically, for me, is settled here in Genesis. So all the philosophers and theologians and people who are really, really smart, uh, who, who look at this, uh, are wrong on this, <laughs> that, that, that when they say that there is no such thing as free will. Because when I look at Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, I come to the conclusion that there absolutely is free will. That we have the ability to choose between good and evil. But what that requires then is that there is an objective standard of where good and evil comes from. And for me, that is God revealed through the Old Testament, then revealed through Jesus Christ. And that that is the standard that we should live by. And we have the choice to either live by that or not. Because the reverse of that, the reason why philosophers and theologians and people have the reverse of that is because they believe, a lot of people believe, a lot of people believe that the standard objective for good and evil is basically when we as a society set the standard. So each society sets a standard that says this is the good way of living and this is the bad way of living. And it isn't done by any higher power or any revelation from God or anything like that. It's when a group of people come together and they look at how they're going to live their life together as a community. And they say, these are the things that we want to do. And to say, these are the things that are the, uh, that are the standard for how we should live. We call those mores, M-O-R-E-S, mores. And we as a society collectively decide what those mores are. And we expect everybody in the society to live by those laws. But those mores can change over time because the society evolves, different, you know, different understandings come about. And so uh, basically then, society lives by whatever the grander view of society is. And so if you live in the United States today, you will find that 
the mores, the standards of society have changed dramatically. Oh my goodness, over the last, well, I mean, they all, they're always evolving, right? Um, but it seems like in my lifetime that the standard of society has, has changed so dramatically over the last, in my lifetime, that, uh, that it is almost shocking. People uh, who, you know, who look at how often these mores and standards change in society will tell you that the last uh, 50 years of American society, of Western culture, has changed so dramatically that it, that it almost seems like we're unhinged to any sort of solid um, backbone of what morality is. And so for those of us who believe very strongly that our morality comes from God and that his objective standard for morality exists in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the person of Jesus Christ, that that's the standard of morality that we should live by, when the society, when Western culture dramatically shifts from that, uh, it is very, very challenging and difficult for us because we cling to, uh, rightly so, what we believe is our standard objective morality, but the society today has seemed to go in a completely different direction, completely different direction, almost to the point where there is no standard objective of morality, and we can do whatever we want. And the reason why we can do whatever we want all goes back to this whole thing of free will. Because if you look at nature, if you look at how nature exists, uh, basically people are the animals are just following their programming, right? The, the, the lion sees the gazelle, the, the gazelle looks like it's good for food. The lion chases after the gazelle. It does this horrible thing of ripping that animal apart and eating it, but that's okay because that's the animal kingdom. We're not in the animal kingdom. We have a higher standard that we're called to, which is living by the standard of God. But if you don't believe that there's an objective morality, if you don't believe, if you believe that there's no free will, then, then it is perfectly acceptable to violate any standard to basically do self-preservation in your life. Now, yeah, you don't want to kill other people because we live in society and society has to have objective standards to live. You have to have some mores to be able to live in, in relationship to each other, right? Uh, and so we don't want to kill other people and all that sort of thing. But it's not, it's not inviolable. It is not something set in stone that uh, has um, a a purpose and a calling from God. Because if there is no objective standard of morality, then what is to prevent somebody to saying, well, it's okay if I kill somebody if I don't, if I can get away with it. It's okay if I kill somebody if they really deserve to be killed. Uh, it's okay if I kill somebody because I'm a very intelligent person. And if people would just follow me and do what I'm thinking, uh, and believing how I think the world should go, then the world will be a better place. I mean, these are the that's the backstory to every James Bond movie, right? You've got these these uh, dictator or not dictators, but these very powerful, wealthy people that have a lot of money and a lot of control over the world. And they see that if the world would just go in their direction, the world would be a better place. And so, what we're going to do is we're going to just destroy half the world so we can get my way of thinking going. And that's basically what Hitler did, right? Hitler believed so much that he saw a vision for what the world should be in the future. And that world meant 
to eliminating a lot of the threats and the people. And if we just get rid of this class of people or this race of people or whatever and follow my path, the world would be a better place. And so that's, you know, that was part of his theory of that, that came through this evolutionary theory that society evolves. We just got to free society and let it get rid of the weak people and get the strong people and let the society evolve. And I don't buy that. I believe from here, from Genesis, that there is an objective standard for how we should live our life, uh, that there is good and evil. We should follow the path of good. This was in the Didache, which is this writings of the apostles from the first century that said there's a path of life and there's a path of death. You need to follow the path of life. I believe that there is a path of life. I believe there's objective beauty. I believe there's objective good. And it all comes down from here. But without that, without this objective good, then there are people in our society and across the world who believe that it's just whatever we decide. Whatever we decide is good, is, is fun, is good. I'll, so I'll leave with this one story. Um, when I was in eighth grade, we read a story called The Lottery. And the lottery is the story about a society that once a year they hold a lottery and whoever picks the black ball out of all the white balls wins the lottery. And you're like, woo, I win a million dollars, right? No, you don't win a million dollars. Basically what that society then does is stone to death the person that gets the black ball. And the whole purpose of that narrative, besides freaking out an eight-year-old kid, <laughs> I mean, eighth grade kid, uh, the whole purpose of the narrative is to, is to play on this idea about whether or not there is objective good in the world. Uh, you know, is, is there a standard for good or evil? And in that story about the lottery, it's like, well, we've always done this. We have to do this. This is just some, you know, this is what our society has agreed to is good. And so we're going to do this year after year. And people start to question, it's like, but why? And so, well, because we've always done it, but why? Well, it's because this is what's necessary for us, you know? And um, it really, if you, are a, if you are an eighth grade kid reading this story, it really does blow your mind, I'll tell you that. Um, because uh, the thing that it reinforces in this eighth grade kid, me, uh, is that there has to be a standard of good and evil. Because if there's no standard of good and evil, how much evil is mankind capable of doing to other mankind? And the answer is pretty big. Man's inhumanity to man is unlimited. Uh, and we've seen this time and time and time and time again throughout history. So I choose to believe that there is good and there is evil, that we do have free will. We have the capacity to follow the path of life and that God calls us to follow the path of life. And it all comes down here because of the Garden of Eden. The reason why I believe there's good and evil in one path is because it was presented to us in the Garden. Now, and because I'm, I'm in a Western mindset. Now, the interesting thing is, and we will get into this on Monday, is that there's different mindsets across the world. There's a mindset, what I would call a nativistic African mindset, where it's more power and fear, and there's kind of this Asian mindset uh, where it is uh, honor and shame. And you kind of see this even in Eastern cultures, honor and shame. And each of these three mindsets or worldviews views the creation story a little bit differently. It's not just about Adam choosing the, the eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's something else. 
Uh, and that, my friends, opens up a Pandora's box. So we're going to get into that a little bit uh, when we get into it on Monday. So you definitely don't... I, you, I said you didn't want to miss today. Well, Monday may be even the next one you don't want to miss. So, um, because we're going to talk about those three ways of looking, the three narratives of life, and what this creation story looks like in each narrative, and why we look at it the way we do, and how other cultures may look at it. And then hopefully by Tuesday, I can wrap all of this up and give you a foundation and a basis moving forward as to what the creation story means for us in our life. So I'm sorry that this is kind of a little bit intellectual. Uh, we probably won't delve into this too much going forward. But you can't look at the creation in the fall without asking these questions. At least I can't. And so um, that's why we're spending a little bit of time. And we've got, you know, we've got, we've got the whole summer in front of us to look at the at Genesis. Uh, we have the whole year in front of us to look at Genesis. So um, we are going to do that. So. As we, as we gather together, as we close today, uh, why don't you uh, join me in prayer? Dear God, thank you for uh, life. Thank you for being good. We believe that you are good because we know that you created us good. You said in Genesis that you created us very good. And we cling to that, Lord. Uh, there are a lot of questions that we have looking at this, but we one thing that we know for sure is that you love us and you care for us and that you have a standard for us. Watch over us this weekend, this long weekend, and keep us safe and bring us back again together on Monday. In Jesus' name we pray.